It is 8.07 in the Twin Cities, 21 degrees. Uh, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. And very happy to welcome, uh, I guess, the now retired professor, Stephen Shear from Carleton College, although you'd never know he was retired because I get all of this uh, data that he sends. Uh, He also sent me uh, today who voted how in 2018 in five different charts Fascinating stuff. Professor Stephen Shear, thank you so much for coming on. Well, I'm glad to know that you're a happy recipient. Oh, I, I am. I mean, there, there's so much, you know, when, when you look at what happened on, on Tuesday night, let, let, me, let me just ask you, from where you sit, and, and I know because you're somebody who really has studied the history of, of these presidencies and, and American politics, what was, there, what was the biggest surprise to you? Well, I think the biggest news out of the election is how the suburbs voted, both in Minnesota and nationally. And uh, what you're seeing is the fraying of the Republican coalition. Uh, You know, Trump appeals to uh, rural, lower-income, white, uh, older voters, and uh, high-income Republicans uh, in the suburbs are not, too keen on the Trump GOP, and I think we saw that certainly in the Twin Cities suburbs. Right. Well, uh, and well, then uh, we saw it in a bunch of other suburban areas in the country. Well, and that's definitely something that that, that you pointed out in, in that uh, data that you showed me, mm-hmm. is that um, 18 to 29-year-old voters chose Democratic candidates over Republicans two to one. Yep. Is that something that, that is Different if you go back 20 years or, 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 or do, do people who are 18 to 29, once they vote Democratic or once they vote Republican, are they pretty much set in their waves for the rest of their lives? Well, that, that can be the case. Um, for example, we know people who grew up during the Depression were lifelong Democrats you know, growing up in the 1930s. We also know there was a Reagan youth generation in the 1980s. So it's quite possible that we're getting a new millennial group of voters who will be inclined towards Democratic voting for the long term. We won't know, obviously, until the future transpires, but it's certainly plausible. All right. Well, let's let's take a look at because there was so so much focus, uh, you know, on these congressional seats in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and and there were four that were were considered, you know, from the onset as toss ups and. Well, yes, they were because they all got tossed up and they came down differently. <laughs> um, yeah. But but uh, what we saw is that we had two open seats, which is actually a rarity. I mean, we, Minnesota only has eight congressional seats, but we had two open seats. Uh, the eighth congressional district, which had been held by Congressman Rick Nolan, who retired, uh, obviously a Democrat, and then you had uh, the first congressional district, which had been held by Congressman. Tim Walls, who obviously uh, gave up his seat to run for governor of Minnesota, that worked out well for him. Oh yeah. Uh, but but and we'll we'll get to that in a bit. But but those two seats had been held by Democrats. I, I might say though, extremely narrowly. I, I think Rick Nolan and Tim Walls. I think each won their seats in 2016 by perhaps about a percent. Yeah, t- two thousand <laughs> or so votes. I mean, yeah. not not a lot. Yeah. Um. What what are your thoughts on on those? Because they certainly fit into the pattern that you said, uh, but that was and then the, the two uh, suburban districts, the third and the second, 
uh, that were held by Congressman Paulson, who'd been in, in office for a number of years. Yeah, ten, ten years. Ten years, which is a long time, had gotten some seniority. And obviously Congressman Lewis, who'd only been in there for, for one term, they both got ousted. So the the net gain of looking at Minnesota, and there was all this talk about Minnesota, you know, and, and getting a net gain for Republicans or net gain for Democrats – it was the same amount. Basically, we still have three Republican members of Congress and we still have um, just uh, – uh, and I'm sorry. I think we lost Professor Shear here. I'm here. Oh, you are? Okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I don't know Professor where Shear. that yeah, came sure. from, Esme, <laughs> okay. but it's gone now. <laughs> but, but, but I guess you know, at the, at the end of the day, Minnesota, of our eight districts, we still have three Republicans and we still have um, five, five Democrats. Mm-hmm. But, but it's – Changed. Yeah. Well, I what we are, what I think we saw on election night is what I call a regional realignment. That is, the suburbs have clearly moved in a democratic direction, and that may be a long-term trend. Uh, but Greater Minnesota is becoming more uniformly Republican, and there's a third point about that to make. Uh, if you look at the seventh district, which is along with the sixth district, uh, one one of the two most conservative. U.S. House districts in the state, Colin Peterson, the longtime Democrat there, running against a, an opponent who had no money, won by only 4%. Uh, that, you know, that district is definitely trending in a Republican direction. Trump carried it by 31%. Right. right. And, and so it's just a matter of time before that area, I think, becomes Republican. Uh, but I think the problem for the GOP in the state is that there are more people in the metro and the suburbs than there are in greater Minnesota. The growth area in terms of population is a Democratic area, and that's a real problem for the Republican Party in this state. Well, and also I think that they have to be concerned about the age gap because let's face it, we're all getting older. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and and to have you know what, what your breakdown showing – Really, this overwhelming trend for younger people who are under the age of 29 voting for Democrats has got to be a source of concern. Right. And, you know, Politico website's done a good analysis of the Minnesota elections. And what they've do, done is study the county results. And what they found is that there's a strong relationship that older counties vote Republican in Minnesota and younger counties vote Democratic, which is in support of your point. Right. Uh, in terms, though, of, of you know the Republicans, yes, they did flip two seats, but they also lost two seats. And then yet again, uh, it, it really is remarkable to me in a state that's so divided that once again, you didn't have anybody who was a Republican winning a statewide office. Yeah, well, we haven't had Republicans win a statewide office since 2006. That's quite a while. And that was, and the last one was Governor Pawlenty. Right, and that was a very narrow win by about 20,000 votes statewide. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. The Republican Party really has to make some major adjustments here. Uh, essentially, they tried to do the same thing twice in the governor's race. That is, um, run the same candidate four years later. Well, uh, you know, Jeff Johnson lost by five points four years ago, and now he loses by 12 points. So I th- one would think the party would learn <laughs> that uh, uh, repeating itself in the way it has since 2006 is a statewide loser. Right. And that's, you know, but what's so interesting, Professor Shear, is that 
I thought it was so interesting that, that you know, yes, Jeff Johnson um, was the nominee again. Yes, he lost. And you're absolutely right. He lost by five points four years ago and he lost by double digits this time. But he took it to somebody. Uh, he, he crushed Governor Tim Pawlenty. Right. Well, when he was down uh, – and, you know, the polls – granted, there weren't a lot of polls here, but, but one poll showed him down by – Double digits to Governor Pawlenty, and and I was I was at Governor Pawlenty's headquarters in mm. August for the primary, yeah. and I I don't think his people saw it coming. No, they didn't see it coming. But I also am not certain that Tim Pawlenty was the solution to their problem because, um, in fact, Charlie Weaver, who uh, was chief of staff for, for Tim Pawlenty, said as much in the Star Tribune today that. Uh, uh, the problems with the Republican Party in the state were so big this year that it's not clear Tim Pawlenty could have fared that much better uh, in the governor's race than uh, Jeff Johnson. So they've got some deep-seated problems here, Esme. All right. Uh, we were chatting with Professor Stephen Shear uh, of Carleton College. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, I do want to kind of continue this theme because the enthusiasm and the passion for, for President Trump amongst his supporters here in Minnesota and, and across the country is so strong and, and so intense. And yet there does seem to be this gap and, and this problem. And how big of a problem is it as, as we march on to obviously the inevitable, which is 2020? So keep it right here. News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 8.20 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with Professor Stephen Shear. Uh, you know, we were talking about uh, your analysis of the elections and, and how much trouble you feel Republicans are in terms of their ability and their failure to, to be able to grab a statewide office mm-hmm. uh, once again, uh, not since 2006, 12 years ago, since Governor Pawlenty was reelected uh, as a Republican in the state of Minnesota gotten a statewide office, you know, one of the things that, that is so striking is, you know, I went, I've gone to some of these rallies uh, that the president has held here in Minnesota, and they're really extraordinary events. Uh, the passion, the intensity, the enthusiasm for the president amongst his supporters is something that, that is really pretty amazing. And yet you're signaling that you think there are vulnerabilities here and and that that he's kind of working himself perhaps into a corner by by not expanding his base. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, he is, uh, uh, I've been wondering when he would try and do this. There's a certain uh, discontinuity or uh, peculiarity about the Trump presidency. If you actually look at his policies, um, he's actually sort of center-right. Uh, he he could I think broaden his appeal with a with a different personality perhaps uh, because he's very polarizing and he uh, he excites people uh, in great number but he also alienates people in great number and I think what we saw in the Twin City suburbs and the suburban regions throughout the country is a lot of highly educated uh, high income people find Trump personally so unpleasant that it's starting to hurt his party. But yet, you know, they picked up Senate seats. Yeah. And and a lot of places that he went and campaigned for candidates, 
those candidates won. Yeah, and including here in Minnesota. I mean, Pete Stauber, and maybe that was you know right. an exception, but certainly um, uh, in the first congressional district, uh, Jim Hagedorn picking up a victory, a very narrow victory. And you have to wonder if if the president had not come to the first congressional district, if Mr. Hagedorn would have won. That's a really good point. Uh, but your examples, I think, show that what Trump does is go to the conservative states in America and excite the base there. And he was able to remove Democratic senators who are from relatively conservative states. Here's the real problem for the president going into the 2020 election. Um, he carried Pennsylvania, he carried Michigan, he carried Wisconsin. Um, these were key states that gave him the Electoral College victory. Uh, By not a lot of votes. Yeah, but uh, if you look at how those states voted uh, this week, uh, they did not vote for Republicans in statewide office. Scott Walker is out. Uh, Democrats gained the governorship of Michigan. A Democratic senator was reelected in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And uh, a, a Democratic governor was reelected in Pennsylvania. Democrats gained a bunch of U.S. House seats in Pennsylvania. I mean, I, the, the evidence is there, Esme, that it's going to be tough for him to carry those three states again. And, and that's, I mean, that's because I, I think people look at, at the 2016 election and they may not realize that it really was. Obviously, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote by two million votes. Yeah. But it was, I think, what was it, 180,000? It was, it was not a lot of votes. Yeah. If that. Um, oh, no, uh, if you change about 77,000 votes in those three states, well, Hillary is president. Yeah. Well, so you see how close it was. Right. Well, since you mentioned Scott Walker, I I, I know that this was, uh, you know, Governor Walker certainly had a target on his back, not just uh, in Wisconsin, but I think nationally. I think a lot of Democrats really wanted Mm -hmm. to get him because he's somebody who has really been um, a lightning rod on many uh, Democratic causes, especially, you know, pro-labor causes. What was it in the end? Was it just Scott Walker fatigue? Well, yeah, I think Paul, uh, Walker, although he has a very different personality than Trump, I think in some ways he governed like Trump in that he was, uh, how should I put it, uh, uh, sort of governing in a very polarizing manner. You know, I mean, it's not often you get uh, a recall election for a sitting governor in a state like Wisconsin, and that's what he had to survive. Um, and I think what happens is that gradually you get your opponent so energized and they amass so many resources that they can take you out. See, I think Trump... And, and Tony Evers was, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. with all due respect to Mr. Evers, he's not sort of a ball of fire. He, this is not <laughs> the most... <laughs> um, you know, he's he's a pretty understated guy. He's not, you know, somebody who's wildly charismatic at all. No. Uh, in fact, he's... The complete opposite of that. Well, but in some ways, people were voting for a contrast because yeah. Walker's such a lightning rod. And uh, if Democrats are smart in 2020, they'll nominate somebody with a personality like Tony Evers, who will be a, quite a contrast to Donald Trump. But uh, the point I wanted to make is that Trump 
in 2016, I think really snuck up on people. Nobody really took him seriously. They really didn't think he could win. He was behind in the polls all the time. And then all of a sudden on Election Day, big surprise. Well, that can't happen in 2020. Everybody knows who Trump is. That's a really interesting point. And and, uh, he has really mobilized a lot of people for him and against him. And uh, he won't catch anybody by surprise again. And I think that's a problem for Trump in that his opponents have put a target on his back like they put a target on Scott Walker's back. They're mobilizing, and I think they had a significant success in the U.S. House races and in some states this uh, midterm, and I'm sure they'll be gunning for him in 2020. So it's going to be a tough a tough road for the president. You know, that's and Professor Stephen Shear raises, I, I think that's a really actually fascinating point that a lot of people who voted for President Trump perhaps didn't think he was going to win. I mean, they wanted him to win. They supported him. But you're right. He was the surprise factor. And it kind of reminds me in a way of, of the Jesse Ventura vote in oh, 1998 yeah. where, where people just really didn't think he could win, but they were mad and they wanted something. They wanted to send a message that, mm-hmm. that outsiders can matter and, and that, that a, a different voice can matter. And I, I think that probably was it. And I think what you're saying is that that kind of a vote can't happen anymore because everybody does know him. Yeah, and well, look what happened to Jesse Ventura. I mean, he surprised everybody and won. He shocked the world. He, yeah, and then he governed, and people started to line up against him, and his popularity dropped, and he ended up not running for a second term. Right. Although, with the president, you know, it, there was – the extraordinary news conference that was extraordinary for for many many reasons. Yeah, yeah. But but one of the things I thought was so interesting is the president kind of ticked down the list of Republicans, and he did name uh, Congressman Eric Paulson of Minnesota as uh, he didn't uh, he didn't want the embrace. I think that was that was the phrase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that 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 it was the Republicans who tried to not. Stand in line and, 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 you know, salute and, and absolutely get behind the president 100% that those Republicans didn't fare well. And that's why you see people like Lindsey Graham going, you know, doing a 180 and getting completely behind the president that he absolutely vilified for so long. Yeah, well, South Carolina is different than the third district of Minnesota. True. You know? uh, and in South, you know, that's one of the, if not the most conservative state in America, one of the three or four most conservative states. And uh, Trump certainly has a popularity there that he doesn't have in the Twin City suburbs, you know. Right. All right. Well, listen, we do have to take a break because we have to give you some weather, which is uh, very important for everyone across the state. But when we come back... I'd like to break down some of the key races here in Minnesota, including that very controversial attorney general's race, obviously the race for governor. You have the two U.S. Senate seats uh, and some of those congressional races with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College. You're listening to News Radio 8. It is 8.34 in the Twin Cities. I want to invite you to tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m., uh, live in studio, uh, we will have obviously all the latest news and weather with Micah Gesnack, but live in studio at 10.30 a.m., uh, the governor-elect of Minnesota, uh, Congressman Tim Walls, will be a live guest and also uh, the chair of the Minnesota Republican Party, Jennifer Carnahan. Right now, we're chatting with Professor Stephen Shear of Carleton College, uh, talking about a breakdown of the election on Tuesday. Uh, 
Let me ask you about the governor's race. Certainly, Tim Walls led in every single poll. Mm -hmm. It turned out to be a a very decisive win. Yeah, it did. Uh, I'm looking at the numbers right here, 53.9% to 42.4%. Never behind in a poll. And, of course, the Democratic formula this year was to increase their outstate appeal with a candidate like Waltz, who had represented the first district in southern Minnesota for uh, several terms. And he managed to do that. Uh, he carried a bunch of uh, uh, counties in the southeastern corner of the state, including his, 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 old, his old district. His old district, Rochester. And uh, actually, uh, more he carried more of those than did Tina Smith, uh, who also won a comfortable election. But uh, the outstate voting for Waltz, I think, really uh, sort of bumped up his margin. And he's in an electorally strong position, I have to say, starting his first term. <laughs> right. And, and that was, I mean, that that big a win, I think, is something that, that I think does stand out. And certainly it was... It exceeded the, even the I think the biggest margins in in the polls. I mean, yeah, yeah it did. Um, uh, the I know the last KSTP poll that was published uh, about five days before the election had the race at uh, about eight points, and nobody had double digits uh, in their polls, and so he actually exceeded uh, his poll margin. That just reflects also the fact that the Democrats had superior resources to the Republicans in terms of money and get-out-the-vote effort. And uh, I tell you, the Republicans have a lot of catching up to do. Right. And, and he also is, is just, you know, I mean, I've covered a lot of people in terms of campaign stops. I mean, this is a, a very polished Speaker. I mean, he's somebody yeah. who who does well, sort of the in the one on ones in terms of delivering the speeches. Uh, he, he had a, a message that he was. It's like he was closing this race. You know, he was sounding this unity theme even weeks ago. Right, <laughs> and, and that unity theme was a very smart theme because I think. Uh, if you think about it, he was making an implicit argument against the president and the president's style, and the president's style really does great on a lot of people. And he was saying he was essentially presenting himself as an alternative right. approach to politics. One Minnesota will work together. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, uh, polarizing and stigmatizing people. Right. And, and I think it's something that he sounded not just in the final week, which I think a number of people tried to make that pivot, but he, he did that you know earlier on. Yeah. Um, and I, I think obviously in, in a very convincing fashion. Uh, let's talk about the Minnesota Attorney General's race because this one was just a, a race that was so volatile and yet uh, Congressman Ellison pulled it out. Yeah. Well, he did with uh, only about a four-point margin, which was significantly smaller than uh, you found for Klobuchar or Smith or uh, Waltz. Uh, And I think that what the polling showed throughout the fall is that he started, that Ellison started in a weak position uh, when all the charges of domestic abuse were out there. But as the election got closer and more negative information and advertising about Doug Wardlow came out, uh, he was able to actually move up in the polls and uh, benefited, I think, tremendously by the very large turnout in the metro area, 
particularly Hennepin County, his home district, you know, I, they, their turnout was 77%, which is higher wow. than the statewide presidential turnout. Wow. Uh, I, I, you know, I had not heard that. So oh, turnout, yes. Turnout in, in, in Hennepin was 77? 77. Uh, statewide, it was about 64%. Wow. Which okay. is usually about, uh, usually our turnout in midterms is about 50%, and presidentially it's 75%. So we had 64% statewide and 77% in the midterm in Hennepin. And that simply reflects the fact that Democrats do a very good job of getting out urban voters. Right. And, and uh, which is in contrast, actually, though, to four years ago. Yeah. Where, where, where the Democratic vote was basically suppressed. There were fewer Democrats, a lot fewer Democrats that came out in 2016, uh, in in the metro area. Right, and I think for two reasons. First, uh, many of them found Hillary uh, Clinton to be an uninspiring candidate, and secondly, a lot of them thought, well, Trump can't win. He's been behind in the polls, and he's a very controversial figure. Right. Well, both those things will be gone in 2020, <laughs> you see. Right. I, and I, Yeah, and I do think... Um, you know, I, I think that there were a lot of things. I think I think you, you raise a really good point, because I, I think that... Congressman Ellison ran this race as if he was way ahead. Yeah. Uh, you know, without really talking about um, Mr. Wardlow's record and, and, and the positions he had advocated for, the work he had done uh, for um, the Alliance Defending Freedom, mm-hmm. and, and really just didn't get into that at all until a couple of weeks before the election. I also think that, that the release of the divorce records. Uh, Congressman Ellison's divorce records from his first from his wife mm-hmm. Kim, yeah. who he'd been married to for twenty five years, I think helped him because it it didn't show any issue. Of it, it didn't show you they've been married in, in a pretty yeah. tumultuous marriage. She she admit you know acknowledged that she had suffered from mental illness and, and was deeply troubled um, for, for some of that. I mean, I think that helped him. And then I also think that Wardlow's comments that he was going to fire all 42 <laughs> yeah. Democrats in the Minnesota attorney generals. I mean, people were kind of going, what, you know, these are attorneys that they're working on consumer issues. It's not a, it's not supposed to be a partisan place. Yeah, and I think, was, I think uh, that really hurt him. That was a big unforced error. You know, and uh, uh, he really couldn't afford any unforced errors in running in a year like this when Democrats were uh, trending in such a positive direction. Right, but but seventy seven percent. Well, that that's I, I had not actually so heard that, that. That explains a, a lot about what happened in the state. Yeah. Right, it, it it certainly does. Um, obviously, Senator Klobuchar once again pulling in enormous numbers, um, which is I, I think a credit to her. That that yeah. in this state that is divided, even though you know Republicans are having trouble getting statewide offices, I mean, pulling in these kinds of numbers is is quite a feat. Yeah, well, of course, Jim Newberger had no money and ran his campaign out of his basement. So when you face an opponent like that, you can run up good numbers. But she is a genuinely popular and can probably be a U.S. senator as long as she wants to be. And that's a question. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. Will she run for president or not? It's quite possible we'll have as many as 20 presidential candidates running for the Democratic nomination in 2020. And if there are 20, I wouldn't doubt that she'd be one of those 20. And when do they have to make up their mind? Oh, well, some of them have already made up their mind right. and are just timing it. Well, uh, when's, the, when's the latest you really can? 
Uh, I think you have to, uh, I would say, uh, golly, I would say by the... Uh, uh, by the middle of next year, frankly, by June of next year would be the absolute latest because everything starts up. You know, the fundraising is such an arduous thing, and uh, you have to campaign in 50 states, and you have to develop infrastructure, campaign infrastructure in a whole bunch of states, and that takes months and months and months. Um, the other, obviously, U.S. Senate race, uh, Senator Tina Smith, that race looked like it was going to be a lot closer, and it turned out not to be that close. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, two things uh, that I think really disadvantaged both Johnson and Housley, Johnson, the governor candidate, and Housley, the Senate candidate, the GOP, they didn't have resources. They were greatly outspent uh, by independent groups and by the incumbents. So, uh, you and if you're a, if you're a challenger to a better known uh, incumbent, you've got to either match or exceed their resources. And neither Johnson nor Housley uh, came close. To that. Right. And, and I did talk to a, a supporter of, of Senator Car- State Senator Karn Housley, who did kind of bemoan the fact that um, the National Republican senatorial committees did not pump money into Minnesota. And, and they, yeah. they pointed to that and they didn't. But I guess it was it was a sort of a situation with, you know, there's a certain amount of resources. And you wonder at, at what point was that game plan drawn up? Was it bor- you know, drawn up before even – Al Franken resigned. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, she ended up losing by 11 points. So uh, it's hard to see how additional resources could have reversed that because, as we see in the state, it was a Democratic year. I mean, this was a blue wave in Minnesota. I don't think you can generalize that to the country as a whole because you have, you know, results that vary from region to region. But in Minnesota, there was definitely a blue wave, and I can understand why the National Republican Senatorial Committee did not put Minnesota on its priority list. They had a lot of other inviting targets, some of which were successful for them. Right, and 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 it's it's again, it's it's kind of the just you know how many resources you have, and you you just have so, a finite number of resources or amount of resources to, that you can plow in. Exactly. Um, I uh, want to talk about – we have to take a quick break, but I want to talk about some of these congressional races and then also the fact that the Minnesota House, uh, all 140 – I always forget how many members there are. 143, is it? Anyway, uh, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, 134. <laughs> 134. There, yeah. there, there you go. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, that did flip after some promises from, from some gun control groups, pro-gun control groups said that they were going to flip that. I want to ask Professor Shear about that. So, so keep it right here, folks. We're going to take a quick break. More with Stephen Shear after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 849 in the Twin Cities. Some closing thoughts with Esme Murphy and Professor Stephen Shear. I, I do want to ask your thoughts about the third congressional district race in which Dean Phillips really won a decisive victory over incumbent Congressman Eric Paulson, somebody who had been in office for uh, more than a decade. Uh, wh- what do you think made the difference here? Was it the suburban voters? Was it the, the 
difficulty that Congressman Paulson had of trying to be with and yet not with President Trump? Yeah. Or was it also what I thought was was a remarkably clever campaign and just sort of almost an artful campaign by Dean Phillips that was funny, uh, inclusive – just I, I just thought it was very well done, very original in, in a lot of the, you know, the, the the campaign themes they sounded in terms of their commercials. Uh, really, I think one that, that that I think people could study if they want to look at a campaign that that was successful in terms of in terms of unseating a, a, a well established incumbent. Well, yeah, I think um, uh, Phillips adopted some of Paul Wellstone's old tactics. Yeah. Uh, drove around in an old uh, in an old truck. Uh, had an open collar campaign. Everybody's invited. Populist man of the people. That sort of thing. Uh, key thing for the third district is it's a highly educated district. It is the most highly educated congressional district in the state. Forty nine percent of the adults in that district have college degrees. By far the largest of any congressional district. One thing that has really happened as part of our realignment in this state is that if your congressional district is above the state average in number of college degrees, you're represented by a Democrat. If your congressional district is below the state average in the number of college degrees, you are now represented by a Republican. Uh, wow. And that, this, is, this is one example of that. Highly educated suburban voters really rejected the GOP in a big way throughout the suburbs this time. All right. Well, that that is that is interesting, and it it's it's as if the the district moved on. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you remember Hillary Clinton carried the third district by nine point five uh, percent, so it was trending uh, Democratic in any event, and um, uh, tremendous resources were brought to bear on Phillips' behalf. I I think he lent himself a million and a half dollars along the way, right. which it's nice to be able to do. I wish I could do that. But, right. But he was also, you know, I do have to say he was out there. I mean, I oh, remember yeah. going to the Dyna parade. In, Everyone's invited. You know, well, July 4th of 2017, <laughs> and there was Dean Phillips with 40, you know, volunteers, yeah. and, and Congressman Paulson was not there. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and uh, you know, so it, it was – you know, showing up, showing up counts. <laughs> yeah, oh no, showing up counts. And Paulson uh, didn't quite know what to do about Trump. And there wasn't much he could do about Trump because right. Trump really alienated a lot of voters in that district and Paulson couldn't overcome that. And, and, and I think sometimes his response to it was somewhat tortured. Yeah. You know, it, it just very difficult, I think, to have it both ways when it comes to the president. Right. Now, um, the president said that Paulson lost because he didn't embrace the president, and I just – I'd like to see the evidence for that proposition. <laughs> well, in, in that good. district, it, that would have – you know, he might have lost by even more. But yeah. um, let me ask you about the Minnesota House flipping. I mean you had a number of groups, and, and there was one group in, in particular, uh, Minnesota Moms Demand Action. I've done a few stories on. Were they – specifically targeted House members that they felt were vulnerable and specifically targeted them on the gun issue. Mm -hmm. And they said there will be – and I, I was here when um, uh, former Mayor Bloomberg of uh, New York who has funded uh, you know, pro-gun control groups to the tune of, of tens of millions of dollars – you know, that he held a rally with them and, and this group got up and said, you know something? We've been working on this for 
you know, well over a year, we're targeting these state representatives that don't support gun control measures and there will be a reckoning. They will pay and we're, we're going to vote them out. And to a certain extent, they did. Yeah. Well, you have to keep in mind that a group like that, plus the Democratic Party, plus other groups, were all moving in the same direction. So the turnout in the suburbs, for example, was beyond what the Democratic Party itself, with its own efforts, was projecting. Uh, Ross Peterson in Lakeville, the uh, assistant majority majority leader of the state house, received more votes this time than she did two years ago, yet lost the election. <laughs> wow. So that tells you something. Uh, having said that, though, Esme, here's something I think everybody has to keep in mind. Since 1952, the party of the sitting president has lost an average right. of 17 Minnesota House seats. This year it was 18. So, you know, there are sort of rhythms in Minnesota politics, and this was part of that, I think. Right. And there are – and you're absolutely right and in terms of, of, you know, nationally, in terms of, you know, control of the House or control of, of, of the, the – mm-hmm. um, uh, Congress, but as you look ahead, as you consider those rhythms nationally, what are some of the things that that, that jump out at you? Well, in order for the you know, in order for the Republican Party to enjoy a positive rhythm, they've got to become a more effective electoral force. Uh, right now, they are outspent and outorganized. Uh, they have problems finding candidates who appeal beyond uh, their relatively narrow partisan voice. A base that those are three big problems right there, uh, and so when you are at a, a competitive disadvantage like that, it's hard to make any rhythm work for you. Uh, and I think that is uh, the main conundrum facing uh, the state in the future. Do we have a fully competitive Republican Party in this state? But and and Trump going forward though. Yeah, well, I think we can see that Trump is not going to be very helpful in the metro area. As I mentioned earlier, he is now a known quantity. He can't surprise people. People take him who oppose him take him as a serious threat, and they mobilize intensely against him. And that was the story in Minnesota this year. Right. Um, because and obviously the Democrats, though, I mean, their problem is is who who do they pick? Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I found it fascinating. I mean, you know, it, it was interesting because uh, Mayor Bloomberg, who is, I think, 76, was here presenting grants to both the city of Minneapolis and St. Paul uh, from part of his um, foundation. I mean, right. Obviously, this is one of the wealthiest people in the world. Mm-hmm. He was doing that all over the country. And one can't help but think, OK, he's running. As a Democrat now, uh, you've got Joe Biden, who's older. I mean, you, you sort of wonder what's going to happen. Well, got- but also keep in mind the whole Sanders movement. I mean, I don't think they're going to embrace a billionaire <laughs> right. necessarily. Uh, you have Kamala Harris, a senator from California, Cory Brooker, uh, a senator from New Jersey, both people of color. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, a strong liberal, may run. So... It's uh, it's going to be a real Donnybrook, all sorts of people uh, uh, trying to run for president. As if it hasn't been the past few years. Uh, I, know. <laughs> I know. All right. Well, listen, Professor Stephen Shearer, thank you so much. So appreciate your time this evening. Uh, great to talk to you. I'll keep reading those emails. I love them. They're fabulous. <laughs> okay, Professor Stephen Shearer, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time this evening. All right, folks, I want to give um, – a huge shout out to Professor Shear and all the other guests in this show. 
want to give a special shout out to uh, producer Jonathan Lowe. I didn't know until he left that it's his birthday tonight. So happy birthday, Jonathan. Uh, you're awesome. Uh, it's always great to work with you. I just really wanted to give you a thank you. And I would have given you a shout out earlier, but I didn't know it was your birthday. So uh, anyway, uh, thank you, Jonathan. Also want to thank uh, Shaletta Brundage, who is also the studio producer uh, here for this hour. And then also a big shout out to uh, producer David Josephson, who is uh, the producer for – one of the producers for Dave Lee in the morning. He does a fabulous job, so I really want to give him a shout out too. Uh, please tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Again, 10.30 a.m., back to the regular show with myself and Mike Gustinek. And Governor-elect Tim Walls will be live in studio at 10.30 WCCO-TV. Rio WCCO, a quick break. We'll give you weather and more.